to episode seven of But I Digress. As always, I'm your host, Warren, also known as Chris by some people. And today on the podcast, we are going to talk about the recently released Emmy nominations, job aspirations of children, uh, rules of digital communication, and some crazy things that may or may not be happening with Area 51. But as always, let's start off uh, with Today in History. Uh, It was a little light today. Summer seems to be a little light for history, but we do have a few things. Uh, First, we have a couple sports things for history. In 1914, Red Murray of the Giants ended a 21-inning game by catching a fly ball to clinch a 3-1 win for the Giants. And what actually makes this interesting is shortly after he ended the game by catching the fly ball, he was knocked unconscious due to being struck by lightning. Uh, one of those weird baseball injuries. Those of you who are familiar with baseball know that baseball players seem to get injured in really weird ways, and it even dates back to 1914. In 1954, we also had the first major league game where the majority of one of the teams was black, and this was the Dodgers. At the time, they were the Brooklyn Dodgers, and those of you who are familiar with sports history and race related know that Jackie Robinson was the first African-American to play in Major League Baseball for the Dodgers. Their owner was trying to find new ways to win, and he looked to the Negro Leagues and some of their greats. And so after Jackie Robinson was able to successfully assimilate into Major League Baseball, uh, that owner then went and got more players from the Negro Leagues and had the first team where the majority of them were black back in 1954. Uh, Just the next year, in 1955, we had the opening of Disneyland in Anaheim, California, Uh, and that entire theme park initially only cost $17 million, which is pretty impressive when you look at how much similar-sized construction projects cost today. Uh, So uh, dating back to 1955, we had what now has spurred Um, Not just Disneyland, but Disney World. There's also a Disney World in Paris. I believe there's another one in one of the Asian countries. And then we have Universal Studios, Six Flags. So theme parks have become huge. And Disneyland was the first really large one back in 1965. And then the last thing we have is in 1975, we have the U.S. and Russia meeting in space. We had the U.S. Apollo 18 and the Russian Soyuz 19 ships docked each other and remained attached for 44 hours. Uh, This was at a time where our relations with Russia were not that great. We had the U.N. meeting while these two space shuttles were docked in space. And over the course of those 44 hours, we had astronauts and cosmonauts conducting experiments, sharing meals, and then also doing a joint press conference. Uh, This was huge because one of the things we were trying to learn how to do and learn more about is rescue missions in space for if we send people to fix a satellite or something and then something goes wrong, figuring out how we can dock ships. So having a little bit of help with this from the Russians who had uh, gotten to space as well, we were able to do some pretty important research on being in space and being able to collaborate with other ships. That's all we have for history. Like I said, it was a light day. Um, So we're going to move on just to the first topic. Uh, The first thing we have today is the Emmys. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, the uh, Emmys are the awards that are given to television shows. And they have in recent times been extended to include 
uh, television series that are exclusively on streaming services as well, as that became a new medium in which we could uh, consume entertainment, uh, they had to extend the rules for a lot of the award shows. So now the Oscars also consider movies that were released straight to streaming services. Uh, So Netflix movies, Hulu movies, Amazon original movies, all of those are also considered for Oscar nominations. And then their original television shows can also be considered for Emmy nominations. So just a few things to go over. Uh, HBO had an amazing year. Those of you who consume HBO, uh, maybe you're one of those people who originally got it just for Game of Thrones, and since you had it, wanted to get your money's worth and watched a few more things. Uh, maybe you're a person who was put onto some shows by some of your friends or coworkers. Uh, but any way you slice it, if you're somebody who consumes HBO outside of just their major product, Game of Thrones, you can attest that a lot of the content on there is pretty awesome, and the Emmys has recognized it as such. They ended up with a total of 137 nominations, 32 of those nominations coming for Game of Thrones, um, which is a record for one television show in one year, getting 32 nominations. And one of the most interesting nominations is the actress who plays Brienne of Tarth actually submitted her own name for Best Supporting Actress. Uh, Normally, it is the studio who submits... Uh, the either the names of the people um, or submits the show for the various awards that the Emmys hand out. And the actress actually submitted her own name and upon doing so was actually able to get a nomination for Best Supporting Actress. So that was an interesting uh, little nugget that I discovered today. Uh, you also had Chernobyl, the HBO miniseries, uh, was the third most total with 19 nominations. And then their show Barry... Uh, was the fifth most total with 17 nominations. And then many other of their uh, shows and all the content that they produced obviously produced the rest of the 137 nominations. The second uh, highest network with nominations was Netflix with 117 nominations. And When They See Us, the dramatization that we talked about a few episodes ago received 16 nominations. Just for a bit of reference... The next closest network was NBC, who received 58 nominations. So we had HBO with 137, Netflix with 117, and then in third place, you had NBC with 58. And HBO had three of the top five uh, shows in terms of nominations. Um, Very interesting. If you haven't watched Game of Thrones, that's interesting. Um, you're one of very few people. And if you're one of those people who hadn't watched it in the beginning and then it just kind of became a thing where everybody watched it and you just wanted to be one of those people who didn't watch it for the sake of not watching it, um, that's perfectly fine. But I would say that you should definitely look into it. If you don't have HBO through your cable package or whatever your online streaming package is, you probably have a friend that does. And I would say give it a shot. I was one of those people who initially didn't watch it Tried to watch it some years ago, wasn't really into it. I think it was about the time that season three came out. And then started watching it again probably about a month and a half before the final season and was able to get really into it. I really enjoyed it. Um, Originally, I didn't think it was for me. 
I don't know, maybe I got older, my taste changed a little bit. But either way, if you haven't actually tried to watch it, I would say give it a shot. If you're one of those people where you watched it and it wasn't for you, completely understand. Um, But if you're a person who just decided not to watch it because everyone else was doing it and you wanted to be different, I would say don't deprive yourself of something that's genuinely entertaining. Uh, I have not watched Chernobyl, but I've heard great things about it. And I have watched a bit of Barry. Uh, If you're into sort of darker humor, um, it's a pretty funny show. It's very entertaining. It's very well written. The writers on that show are fantastic. Um, It's about a guy who is a low-budget hitman and discovers that he has a love for acting. And now he's trying to balance whether or not he's going to be a hitman. He kind of wants to quit. He kind of wants to act, but he's never acted before. Um, And he initially doesn't have a lot of acting skill. He just really enjoyed it. So it's a really interesting plot. And if you're into darker humor with a little more dialogue, it's very, it's definitely something that you would enjoy. Otherwise, I would say 137 Emmy nominations probably says there's something on there for you. Not that this is a podcast that's being sponsored by HBO, but we are in a time where television is probably doing better in terms of quality entertainment than it has been in history. So I would say, while obviously you should read and you should interact with people, uh, when you're taking time for yourself to kind of recharge and rewind, um, I would say try to consume some interesting media because we do have things um, like Game of Thrones, which is based on books, so it's interesting to see those kind of adaptations. We have When They See Us, which is a dramatization of real events, and so there are plenty of ways for you to continue to learn and expand your horizons uh, through some of the different television series and miniseries, Chernobyl obviously being based on uh, real events as well. So there are plenty of things in which you can enrich your mind while also being entertained. Moving on, um, we're going to talk about the job inspirations of children. So as we advance as a society, Um, and people continue to have kids, we still ask kids the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? However, over the years, those answers typically change based on new jobs that may have popped up or new jobs that are becoming um, more popular or are having a new spotlight shined on them, either through maybe more of a market for those jobs or more television shows based on those jobs. So a lot of children see like doctors on TV. They might see lawyers on TV. Occasionally you see like pilots on TV. So those are often uh, pretty popular uh, job choices for children. Astronaut was really popular in like the 70s and 80s when space was being... um, was getting a lot of public attention from both just everyday people and the media uh, due to our recent exploration. And now, since we don't really go into space that much, you don't see it as much. Um, But you still obviously have kids who are interested in space. And so it's really interesting to look through the years at what kids want to do as a profession, especially considering that when you're talking to small children, uh, and in the case of what we're going to talk about today, 8 through 12, they really haven't done a lot of research into what actual jobs exist. So their knowledge of what they can do as a profession is generally pretty limited. And so it generally gives us a pretty good idea into what is considered mainstream and uh, what they're being exposed to because they are not generally looking at 
college majors and what those jobs lead to. And some of them have parents with really complicated jobs or lesser known jobs. And so they can't really tell you what their parent does or maybe it will tell you who they work for. Um, but like my dad was a contractor for most of my life where he did procurement for the military. And when I was seven years old, I couldn't tell you that my dad did procurement for the military. I just knew that he did things where he had to work with other people and he was in the Air Force. And so obviously, as I got older, I had a better understanding of the job. But if you're a kid who grew up like me with a parent who was doing a job like that, then you may not have been like, oh, I want to do what my dad did. And if I did, my answer was, I want to be in the military like my dad, not necessarily doing what he did. Uh, so it's just something that's interesting to look at. And Lego, which obviously makes children's toys, and so they'd be interested in things like this, uh, they commissioned a poll that was conducted. Um, and the reason why they commissioned this particular poll is because this year is the 50th, the 50th anniversary of the lunar landing of the U.S., and the results are pretty interesting. The results showed that kids would rather be a YouTube vlogger than an astronaut. They polled kids between ages 8 through 12 from the U.S., the United Kingdom, and China. And I have the results here. 86% of the kids say they are interested in space exploration, and 83% of parents think their kids are interested think their kids are interested in space exploration. So those numbers are pretty similar. Uh, parents being pretty in tap with their children. 90% of the kids said that they want to learn more about space. And then 85% total, but the numbers break down to 88% for the US, 87% for the UK, and 79% for China. Uh, of kids can identify Neil Armstrong as the first person to walk on the moon. So pretty high numbers. Uh, we're not doing so bad with our teaching of space and things that happen. Um, and we also did well in distinguishing what's real and what's not. Only 2% of kids believe that Buzz Lightyear was the first man to walk on the moon. And here's where the numbers start to split a little bit. 97% of children in Canada 88% of children in the U.S. and 87% of children in the U.K. think a human will make it to Mars in the future. So most kids think we'll get there more so in China than the U.S. and the United Kingdom. Uh, another split, 95% of the children in China versus 68% of the U.S. and 63% of children in the U.K. would possibly like to travel to space or another planet. So now we start to see the numbers differing where the majority of the kids, well, well over the majority of the kids in China would like to travel to space or another planet at some time, whereas just over half of the kids in the U.S. and the U.K. would like to travel to another planet. When students were asked what they wanted to be when they grew up, uh, which was at the end of the survey, and they were allowed to give a total of three answers, the results were 11% of American and British children said astronaut. Now, this is after they have been talking about uh, who, went, who walked on the moon, whether they think people will go to Mars, whether they want to travel in space. So these kids have space on their mind, and we know from psychology that children can be influenced about what's been talked about recently, so you would think the numbers would be a little higher, but in this case, only 11% of American and British children said they wanted to be an astronaut. 30% uh, of British children and 29% of American children said they would like to be a vlogger or a YouTuber. Meanwhile, in China, for the Chinese children, 
Astronaut was the number one choice, and 56% of their children said they'd like to be an astronaut as one of their three answers, and only 18% versus the 30 and 29% for the UK and the US respectively said that they'd want to be a YouTuber or a vlogger. So what I think is interesting about this is how we are viewing the quote-unquote profession, and I guess you can almost not even quote-unquote anymore, of being a YouTuber or a vlogger. There are tons of YouTube channels that have videos being conducted by children, preteens, teenagers, adults, dogs, cats, and these people and sometimes animals make thousands, hundreds of thousands, and sometimes millions of dollars from posting videos, which I totally understand. And kids these days, a lot of them would rather watch a kid on YouTube open up and play with a toy than open up and play with that same toy themselves, which is fascinating and a completely different topic. Um, But when you have people who are everyday people and represent us, or we feel like represent us, uh, we want to be like them. It is also seen in kids who play sports, and a lot of times when they grow up, or when you ask them what they want to be when they grow up, they say a professional baseball player, or a pro basketball player, or a pro football player. Or when they're really young, they might say a particular athlete's name. So I want to be Cam Newton, I want to be Odell Beckham Jr., when they're like five or six. And what they're saying is, I want to be a pro football player like this person that I see. And we see this representation taking its form in the hairstyles that kids are choosing, the clothes they choose to wear when they're getting Christmas gifts. They may ask for a particular person's jersey or a shirt that they saw on maybe a YouTuber that they like or a toy that somebody used. It's the part in marketing where you use famous people to market products because those are people who are admired by your target audience and so on and so forth. And so it's interesting that a medium like YouTube has made it so that you don't have to necessarily like be discovered to become famous at a young age or at all for that matter. Um, you don't necessarily have to have a talent like a singer or a dancer or an athlete, which when I was younger was the way that people became famous Um, Because oftentimes, even the richest, smartest people in the world weren't that famous. The CEOs of companies were often not known um, by people who were not older or working in that industry. But like a 13-year-old doesn't know who the CEO of Walmart is, even though that person is one of the richest people in America. But they can tell you who their starting wide receiver is for their favorite football team. But again, that person had to have some sort of talent to reach there. They can tell you all about their favorite singer, If they were a dancer and they go to ballets or they dance traditionally, they can tell you all about their favorite dancer. But again, these are people who had to have some exceptional talent to reach this plateau. What we have now with social media and especially YouTube is people who don't necessarily have to have a talent to reach similar levels of fame. Now, do we have people who have a ton of Instagram followers and YouTube subscribers because they're posting dance videos or posting singing videos? Absolutely. But you also have people who are famous because 
they share an opinion that a lot of people agree with and people flock to them and then want to see everything that they're producing. This is the concept of podcasts where it's literally just people talking about whatever they want to talk about. And people generally tend to listen to it because they enjoy the conversation. They respect that person's opinion oftentimes because they agree a combination of them agreeing with that person and that person being right. Um, they can relate to that person. And so it's like having somebody else who's similar to talk, similar to you to talk to. Um, so there are a ton of reasons why these things work, but it's fascinating to me that, people can do this as a profession and that kids are actually now striving to do this as a profession. It started with people trying to make their children YouTube famous by constantly posting videos of their babies and their young children, trying to get them subscribers before they can even walk. That's one thing. But now we have kids viewing this as a viable option for making money to work or to live day to day as opposed to something that would be really cool or something that would be awesome. I've actually had students that I work with where we were talking about steps you need to take when like, they would give me a particular career and I would go, all right, this is the breakdown. After you go to high school, uh, for this one you have to go to college, you should major in one of these like seven things and then like get internships here and try to do these kinds of things. If you want to be a pro athlete, these are the type of trainings and things you need to do. If you want to be a plumber, then after high school you should go to trade school. If you can get into a vocational high school, you should try to do that, blah, blah, blah. So we went through all these things. And I had a student who had given me a separate profession, but he asked about it. He was like, what about if I want to be a YouTuber? And I had to stop for a second because while I know that people have gotten famous from doing this and have made large sums of money from doing this, in my born in the 90s, raised in the late 90s, early 2000s age, I had not considered that to be some sort of profession. I hadn't considered that people would strive to do this as their day-to-day thing. I would, the way that I approached it, which I completely understand why they approach it the way that do, they do, but the way I approached it was you have a job and then when you get home, you might post some videos on YouTube and then try to build subscribers and followers that way. Where you have kids now who are thinking that this is a viable profession and that anyone can do this. And so it just raises an interesting conversation of how do we encourage kids who want to do this because there is absolutely a market for it and it seems as though that market is not going to end because culturally, for younger children, this is ingrained in how you interact with the world around you. So how do we encourage kids to do it And how do we also have them understand that much like the kid who desires to be a pro athlete, that such a small small percentage of the population are able to actually accomplish this and encourage them to have a backup plan and things of that nature the same way that we would encourage somebody who wants to be a professional athlete. And I think that this survey is really important because it is putting something on the radar of educators that I'm sure many educators had not considered in the way that I had not considered it, that kids are viewing this as a profession the same way that they are viewing pro athlete and pro singer and pro dancer. And we need to change the way that we view social media and things like YouTube and Twitter and Instagram and how kids use them and what kids want to use them for in order to properly encourage them. 
All right. The next topic I have is about rules of digital communication. Now, this was something that I found interesting. It was something I saw in USA Today where it chronicles some rules of communicating either through text or on social media. And uh, full disclosure, I have not actually read through the list. I thought it would be interesting to go through it live on the podcast and react to each of the rules. Um, I'm sure that some of these rules I will agree with, some of them I will disagree with. A lot of them probably have to do with what generation you're in. Uh, So if I have any insight into how maybe my parents or my grandparents or some of my students uh, would react to the rules, um, we'll talk about that as well. I just think it's going to be something that's pretty interesting considering that digital communication for a lot of people is their main form of communication where for a lot of us previously it was talking on the phone or different areas of your life, uh, you communicated differently. So maybe at work, it's primarily through email, maybe with somebody that you're in a relationship with, it's primarily face-to-face, maybe with a distant relative, or if you're in college, your parents, it's primarily on the phone. Uh, So there are tons of ways that we communicate now with the advances in technology that we have. And so I think it'll be really interesting to see what some of the rules are. And I believe most of these rules were taken from people uh, through Twitter. Uh, So these aren't rules that like some quote-unquote expert came up with, but these are the rules of the people, uh, for lack of a better term. So there are 15 of them, and we're just going to run through them. So the first one says, don't randomly FaceTime people. If you want to FaceTime, shoot them a text or call first. Now, I think this is interesting because FaceTime, number one, is only for people with iPhones, which is a large portion of the population, but not necessarily everybody. Um, But I think this one's interesting because I think it's generational. I'm someone who is 28, and I don't think I've ever used FaceTime on purpose, like with, like, friends or anything. My parents and I FaceTimed when we're on tropical vacations, and, like, one of us is gone and one of us is at home, and it's mostly just, oh, look at my hotel room. It looks really cool, as opposed to, like, showing pictures. Uh, Other than that, I don't recall ever FaceTiming somebody on purpose outside of situations like that. Uh, So that's really interesting. My sister, who is only five years younger than me, uh, when I would visit her when she was in college, um, a lot of her friends would FaceTime instead of calling, and that was normal for them. Like, if we need to, the same way that I might be texting someone, and I know there's it's going to be a long texting conversation, but on the phone, we could get it done in five minutes. Uh, instead of calling, they would FaceTime. So we would regularly be with, like, I would be with her, and we'd be making plans, and she would get a FaceTime call, and they would literally talk to each other the same way that I would talk to someone on the phone, but they chose to FaceTime instead. Um, and she actually said to me, like, no, I never call people. Uh, like, traditionally, we only FaceTime or text, which I thought was interesting. Um, So that could have changed now because that was a few years ago. It could be that younger kids feel that way and kids my sister's age still FaceTime their friends instead of just calling them. Not really sure, but I think that one is definitely an interesting one. Uh, The second one is one-word texts like okay and LOL are conversation killers. Don't respond with one word unless you don't want to talk anymore. Now, this is definitely generational. 
Uh, my parents are from the generation where they don't have texting conversations the same way that I do, where there are some people where we almost never talk on the phone unless we're like meeting up at night or something, or it's like very urgent that we speak on the phone right this second. But I will regu regularly have full 30 minute, 45 minute, hour long conversations through texts. So for those situations, I will absolutely say, okay, and LOL are conversation killers. However, my parents, for example, whenever I'm texting them, it's a matter of function, where I need to tell you something, this is all I have to tell you, or I need to ask you something, this is all I have to ask you, and in my opinion, it doesn't warrant a full-fledged phone call. For my mom, for example, my mom will often text me and go, hey, your dad needs help with this, can you come help him? And the answer is yes. And then I get up and drive the five minutes in my car that it takes me to get to my parents' house from my apartment. Right? Like, that's like she could call me, but it's easy to just shoot me a text really fast. And so, or like, hey, we're going to do this thing on Friday. Can you do it? Yes, I can. And then she says, okay, conversation done. But that's a situation where we're not actually attempting to have a real conversation, it is simply a transfer of information. So I think this one is interesting because I don't know that my parents have anyone where they have texting conversations with them. So a lot of their texts may be okay or LOL because somebody shows them something funny or somebody asks them something or tells them something and they just say okay. Uh, so I think that one is definitely generational. Number three, if someone you know comments on a photo or video you posted, you should respond. This, I think, is very generational. Um, Regularly, I will post things and people comment on it or like it or something, and there's no response. Because a lot of times, there's, in my opinion at least, and I think in people my age's opinion, there's no need for a response. We're not starting a conversation. There's no need for a back and forth. There's no need for a rebuttal from me. If I post something and the comment is like, oh, this reminds me of that time that we did X, Y, and Z then I might go back and like the comment. But like, or I might not, but it doesn't actually matter. But to whoever this person is, whatever generation they're in, that not commenting or responding would be the equivalent of somebody holding a door open and you not saying thank you. And I think that is interesting. Number four, if someone communicates to you using a certain form of communication, like email, you are expected to respond using the same form of communication. That one, I don't know that I necessarily agree with. There have been plenty of times, and I'm sure people my age can attest to this, that somebody texts you and asks you a question. And you know that the answer to your question is going to be kind of complicated and may or may not involve follow-up questions. So instead of just responding through text, you might call them. If it's someone who you're really comfortable with, you might just call them and not give them a warning. If it's somebody who you know they may be busy, you might text them back and go, hey, can I just call you? So I think it's interesting. Uh, there are often times where like, one of my parents will text me and I know that it's going to be a longer conversation and so my answer is to just call them back. Um, so that's interesting. Uh, when it comes to things like email, if you work in an office where you have some sort of instant messenger and you know it might be a back and forth, I would be a person where if you email me, I might try to instant message you because I know that it's, there's going to be some sort of back and forth to answer it um, because I'm not a fan of using email like an instant messenger. That's a little bit frustrating. So I think it's situational and I think that 
could also, again, be generational. We are on number five now. Don't like your own post. People see that and it makes you look weird. Uh, Yes, absolutely agreed. I would love to talk to my parents about this and see what their opinion is, but I don't think anyone under the age of 40 is going to disagree with the fact that you should not like your own post. It's very weird. We know that you liked it. You posted it. You shouldn't post anything that you don't like. Number seven. I'm sorry. Number six. Don't ask for likes, comments, or shares. I mostly agree with this. I would definitely say don't ask for likes and comments. Depending on what it is, I would say it's okay to ask for shares. Like, I post this podcast on social media, and because this is something where I would like people to listen to it, I think that it's okay for me to ask for shares of this. If you are doing an event and you're trying to publicize that event, I think it's okay to ask for shares, but I think in like terms of general life, you probably shouldn't like post a picture of you on vacation and then ask people to share it. I think that is a little weird. I would agree. Number seven, don't take hours to respond without an excuse. Um... I can see why that would be considered rude if somebody texts you and you don't respond for hours and you don't actually have a reason. But at the same time, I'm also a fan of free will in communication. And if I just don't feel like talking to you right now or don't feel like talking to anyone right now, that that is also a viable excuse and I can answer it later. If it's urgent, that's really inconsiderate. But if it's not urgent... I just mostly don't feel like talking, and I know that it's going to turn into a conversation. I think I reserve the right to not answer right now. Number eight, you don't actually have to leave a voice message. I absolutely agree with this. Um, if you are not in a professional setting with me, and you call me, so my parents, my friends, whoever, don't leave a voicemail. If it was something that you just needed me to know. You shouldn't have called me in the first place. You just should have texted me. And if you need to actually talk to me and you call me, I will see the missed call and call you back. Now, if it's something where you need to tell me, oh, hey, I was trying to get a hold of you for X, Y, and Z, but like I only had a minute. I'm not going to be available for the next four hours. Don't leave that voicemail. Text me and go, hey, wasn't a big deal, won't be available till whatever time, I'll try you again or call me again or call me back at that time or whatever. There's no reason for you to leave a voicemail. Now, will you get voicemails from people for job interviews and things like that? Absolutely. Perfectly fine. Understandable. But if I actually know you, there's no reason for you to leave a voicemail. I don't need the hey, it's mom, just calling to check on you. Like, that, I kind of figured that because the phone list says your name in red because I missed a call, so I knew it was you. Number nine, if someone asks you multiple questions via text, don't just reply to part of the message. Absolutely. If I ask you three questions in one text, that is because I'm trying to be efficient. Please do not ignore two of the three questions. That's incredibly frustrating. If you don't feel like you can answer all of them, then feel free to go, hey, can we talk about this on the phone or talk about this in person? Because you don't want to have a long conversation. But don't simply ignore questions that were asked. It's very, very frustrating. Number 10, 
don't post dozens of photos of cheesy quotes back to back. This one could be a point of contention with somebody. Uh, I know people who love to post cheesy quotes. And for some people, that is almost the only thing that they post. And I don't want to tell people to limit what you post because for those people, it may be some sort of inspiration or motivation to do better or what have you. So what I would suggest is if you're a person who isn't fond of that, uh, you can curate all of your social media and decide who you follow. Or like on Facebook, for example, we can be friends with someone without following them or seeing any of their posts. So I would suggest that we don't stop people from doing what makes them happy, especially in the climate that we're living in, and allow them to post the cheesy quotes and just don't look at them. Number 11, it's okay to text happy birthday, Merry Christmas, etc. You don't have to call. Uh, definitely agree with this one. There are certain people who I know are going to call me on my birthday, and that's perfectly fine. And I kind of expect them to, but I would absolutely not be disappointed if those same people just texted me. Not that I don't like the phone call, because I absolutely appreciate it, and you don't have to think about me on my birthday and wish me a happy birthday. It's actually a very arbitrary cultural thing that we do in America. Uh, but with all of that being said, call me, text me doesn't matter, but you don't actually have to call. If you feel like, oh, it's a birthday, I have to call because it's more important. No, you don't. You can text me. There are text message streams that I have with people where the only time we talk to each other is the twice a year where it's either my birthday or their birthday. And that's okay with me. I don't know how they feel about it necessarily, but considering that they also wish me happy birthday, I would assume that they feel similar to me, that it's just really nice that somebody thought about you. And it doesn't have to be a conversation. We don't have to talk regularly, but at some point you are in my life. So I wish you a happy birthday. You wish me a happy birthday. And that's the end of it. And I appreciate it. Uh, number 12, don't have one-on-ones in the group chat. Better yet, rarely send group chats. They're mostly annoying and usually avoidable. This is so true. If you have a group chat with like seven people in it, for whatever reason, uh, we have a cousin group chat in my family. Uh, I'm in a group chat for a bocce team that I'm on. I'm in a group chat for a volleyball league that I play in. Do not have one-on-one -on -one conversations in those. It's bad enough that you have nine people constantly making your phone buzz. Very frustrating. It's really bad when two people who obviously have each other's numbers decide to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. If I say something in a group chat, so maybe in the family group chat and like the cousin group chat, I post something because I think it's really funny and you want to have a conversation with me about it, text me outside of the group chat. Do not bring everybody else into our conversation. Nobody enjoys it except for the two people who are having that conversation. It really frustrates everybody else. It's incredibly unnecessary. Also, I agree that often group chats are avoidable. They do have their function. Like, it's really nice when we're in our volleyball league and we can text the group chat and go, hey, game's at 7.30 tonight. Like, who can show up so we can make sure we have numbers? And, like, that is the, that is the whole conversation. It's really nice. So let's not abuse what is something, what is very, very convenient. Number 13, try not to deliver bad news via text. Don't deliver bad news via DMs. Gonna also agree with this one. Um, I appreciate that they said try not to because there are some times where you're trying to get a hold of somebody and you just can't and can't and can't and eventually you just need them to know whatever the news is. 
Um, but I would definitely say try any other means that you can of talking to that person and delivering the bad news. And then if you have to do it via text, because like it's been three days and I really just need you to know this, then you have to do it via text. And that person was unavailable, things happen, that's fine. Um, I don't use DMs for anything. Um, despite numerous suggestions, nobody has DM'd me in regards to the podcast. Um, so I'm going to just agree for lack of experience. Uh, number 14, if you don't get a response, you don't have to get angry. It's not always that big of the deal. This one, I would say, definitely depends on who you're talking to and what the message was. If it is something that is really, really important to you, first consider that it may not be as important to that person. Also consider that people have a lot of things going on. And I'm sure all of us, at least at one point or another, and some people do this more often than others, read a text message, craft a response, think they respond, and then don't. And then they look back and go, oh, crap, I didn't respond. Um, again, some of us, that happens sometimes and rarely. Others of us, it happens all the time because we can be absent-minded. That's perfectly fine. So first, understand who you're dealing with and whether or not that's important to them, whether they're absent-minded, et cetera, et cetera. Secondly, if your message really wasn't that important or you text them at an inconvenient time, consider that they may have just like forgotten because there have been times where I look at a message that isn't that important and I'm like really busy and then I don't think, oh no, I need to get back to that message. Like I don't think about it again because it wasn't important. So consider all of the context around that. Uh, so I would definitely agree that maybe don't get angry. It's not always necessary. Sometimes, sure, but for most of it, it probably doesn't warrant the amount of anger that you're devoting to it. Uh, 15, if you have time to post on Snapchat, you have time to respond to text message. That's absolutely true. Um, if it's important and you're posting on Snapchat or posting on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and you're ignoring a text message, people are going to realize that. And so you're doing a bad job of ignoring people. Now, if you just want to be a jerk, then you can just be a jerk. That's fine. But understand that that's what people are going to think about you. The last topic we have today is Area 51, something that was talked about a lot more, at least I heard about a lot more when I was younger, and I think people just kind of stopped talking about it, or at least the people that I interact with um, and or follow on different forms of social media stopped talking about it. But it's come up recently because there was a Facebook meme page that created an event where they invited uh, users to raid Area 51. The event was titled Storm Area 51, They Can't Stop All of Us, and was dated for September 20th of this year. And what's funny is, according to the website, it started off as a joke, and they're maintaining that it is a joke, but they have since had 1.5 million people RSVP to the event that they are going and 1.1 million people RSVP to the event that they are interested. And for those of you who don't look, who don't use Facebook, interested is basically like RSVPing, maybe I'll go. Um, and again, they're maintaining that it's a joke and people have posted funny comments of like hand drawings of maps and routes in which they'll do it. But again, maintaining that the entire time it's a joke. However, the U.S. Air Force, who runs Area 51 as a training ground, is 
making sure that they are covering all their bases and letting people know that it is a terrible idea to storm Area 51. You should never walk on a live military training ground because it is very dangerous and you can be killed and blah, 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 blah. And this is fascinating to me because I understand that it's a joke and it's really funny, but people have proven that they will do things that are incredibly unintelligent because it could be a great story or it seems fun or whatever their reasoning is. As someone who tries not to do things that I think could end up badly, um, I can't tell you what the reasoning is behind them all the time, but there are numerous examples of people doing things and people oftentimes will look at them and the only question they can ask is why? Why in the world would you think that would work? Why in the world would you try that? Why did you think that was a good idea? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what worries me a little bit is these people saying, yeah, it's a joke, like we didn't really mean it. But of those 1.5 million people, how many people actually want to do this and will actually try to do this? Uh, There is a pretty famous hotel in Nevada near Area 51 called the A. Lee Inn. Like, you know, you have a hotel like the hotel or the Holiday Inn. It's the Ailey Inn. And the the hotel is booked solid on September 20th, which is the day that's posted on the event. Now, this could be people who have disposable income, uh, feeding into the joke and booking rooms at the hotel or what have you. Uh, But when people start to spend real money, I start to kind of believe that they're going to do things. So I'm really interested in seeing what happens. Hopefully people are smart enough to not actually participate in this and possibly get themselves killed by going on an active military training ground. But I would also be lying if I didn't say that I would not be surprised if people participated in this because that is the unfortunately the time in which we live but wait there's more hang on to your seat baby because this one's a screamer for this week's but wait there's more um i'm gonna try to keep it a little shorter than i did last week i was pretty passionate about what i talked about last week and this one is also something that interests me and i think is something that needs to be mentioned um, consistently until we can figure out a way that we can kind of change things around. Um, So for those of you who haven't been really paying attention, uh, politics has been contentious, uh, for lack of a better word, for the past like three-ish years. And I think it kind of ebbs and flows where we may have comments from certain people in office that are polarizing, to say the least. And it's something that I appreciate in a way for the last few years, because there are lots of people on the side of the majority that were saying that um, racially charged attitudes or racist attitudes or racist ideals no longer existed. We had a black president, we're living in a post-racial society, and so on and so forth. And after the 2016 election, you had a lot of people who felt empowered to express the 
racially charged and racist based ideas and ideals that they were perpetuating. And so what it did was it created a climate in which minorities who were continually saying that while we did make progress, some progress by electing a black president, which was really awesome, um, we are not at the point at which a lot of people are trying to say that we are. And it has been nice, although frustrating, but nice that we now have things where we can point to the people who are in the middle um, and maybe are not minorities, but are also not the racist people who are perpetuating those ideals, um, who are believing that we were living in this utopic society. We now have things that we can point to where we can go, see, look, we weren't just making this up. Here is like very hard evidence that these ideals and these people still exist. It's been really, really great. Uh, but also very, very frustrating at the same time. And in a week where we had comments out of a particular office where congresswomen were, I don't want to say verbally attacked because it feels a little aggressive and opinionated, but there were comments made towards uh, some congresswomen who have been considered to be very progressive uh, in which they were told that if they didn't like where they were living or they were going to, going to continue complaining about things that they disagreed with, that they should just go back to where they came from. And it's interesting on two levels. Uh, the first level is that, and I actually saw this in a, a meme on Facebook shortly after and I thought it was very funny, um, but what it is is that a lot of the times the people who are telling others to go back to where they came from are forgetting that they are not from here. And what the meme said is white people need to remember that they can also go back to where they came from. Um, and I think that's really funny, especially considering that when you talk to a large number of white people, uh, they are very proud of whatever their heritage is, whether they are German or Irish or British or Italian or French or Polish or Yugoslavian or whatever it is. They are incredibly proud of it. You can talk to them and they'll go, I am a quarter this, I'm three-eighths that, I'm half this, I'm a fourth this, and they will give you the entire fractional breakdown of their heritage. But at the same time, those people will also shout at people to go back to where they came from. I think that's fascinating because they will simultaneously acknowledge that their heritage is not of this country while telling people that they need to leave this country and go back to where they are from. Um, and it's also, and going back to the particular comments, it's fascinating because if you actually do the homework on the four women who we are believing were being targeted by the comments, three of the four of them were born here, and a couple of them, their parents were also born here. So for them to go back to where they came from would be to just stay here. Because not only are they from here, but their parents are too. And in the same way that a lot of white people will say, well, I am part this, and 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 it's almost all European. Um, you have people who are from Mexico who can say, I'm 100% Mexican. Both of my parents were born here, and both of each of their parents were born here, and all of my great-grandparents were born in Mexico. 
But again, they would be third generation Americans and by the same properties that got white people to America, uh, immigration, they would be American as well. And they would just be able to go, I'm 100% Mexican because the people in my family continue to marry and have children within the race. And I have friends who are more than majority Italian. And they are both of their, one of their parents is from Boston and the other parent is from, oh, I cannot remember at this moment. But the point is, um, for a long time, they obviously believe that they are 100% Italian. And then through 23andMe and Ancestry DNA, you see that you're part this, part this, part this. But you can come from a long line of Italians and marry someone who also comes from a long line of Italians. You can come from a long line of Germans and marry someone who come, also comes from a long line of Germans. And so then you have people who are like, well, I'm 98% German, right? And we don't consider whether or not they were born here because there are people who are from Germany or Israel or any other European country where their parents were not born, born here and their parents moved here and then they were born here and they're white and they complain and nobody told them to go back to France or go back to Britain. So it's interesting that we only use this terminology when referring to minorities, telling them to go back to where they came from. It's even more interesting when it's used for black people because we frankly don't know where we came from for most of us. Most of us who have been here since the early start of slavery had our heritage culture stripped from us. So you can tell us to go back to where we came from, but all we know is America because we've now been here for 400 years because the first slaves got here in 1619. Uh, Some of us have maybe only been here for 300 years, but still we are not sure. Africa is a continent with lots and lots of countries. And so I couldn't go back to where I came from if I wanted to because I don't know where that is. Uh, So I think we need to be considerate of the phrasing that we use and maybe consider that regardless of political correctness, uh, the phrasing might just like not even make logical sense. Like telling someone to go back to where they came from when they are the second generation of their family that was born in America is very stupid because where they came from is here. Uh, And also being mad at people for complaining about things that they think are unfair is very stupid because that's what this country was founded on. The people didn't like the government and the religion in Britain, so they left and made their own and then fought for it because they thought it could be better. And the whole basis of democracy is the people choosing what they think is best. And as things grow and evolve and change and people grow and evolve and change, Governments should also grow and evolve and change. And the reason why we only have two terms for a president is because people have the option of changing things they don't like, which means inherently they have to complain about them because they have to express their disagreement in order to change things that maybe need to be changed. So when considering what's happening and what people are saying, maybe think about what your opinion is, why you feel that way, and if it is A, relevant, B, makes sense, and C, is something that really is worth saying. That's all I've got for today. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, As always, 
Subscribe, rate, review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Spotify and SoundCloud. And uh, if you're going to do it on Apple Podcasts, please, five stars. If you don't want to rate it five stars, please, instead of rating it lower than five stars, DM me on either Instagram at dubr16 or on Twitter at dubr1617. Thanks again for listening and later days.